Go ahead and grab out your Bible, something to take some notes with uh, as we study God's Word today. I'm excited. We're in part four of our series called A Faith That Still Moves. And we're going chapter by chapter through the book of James. James is writing this incredibly practical letter. He's writing a letter to the church that is dispersed throughout the world from persecution. This is the early church. He's writing in the most practical way that he can on things of how to live the Christian life, on what it actually looks like. And he says in chapter one, he says, don't just be hearers of the word. Do what it says. He said, don't deceive yourself by just learning a whole bunch and being the most learned person in all of your circles and having all of theological commentaries and all of the information in the world. And I think we're guilty of that sometimes, that we have access online and on uh, digital, whatever it is we have access to of every verse, commentary, translation, theology book, everything we could possibly dream of. And James says, don't deceive yourself just learning everything. Do what it says. And so begins his uh, probably harsh critique of the early church. And I think it speaks directly to us as well as Christians about how to live this everyday life. So James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's um, converted after the resurrection. And then he begins to write to the early church, dispersed throughout the nations. And he writes, and it's very hard-hitting though. He doesn't just get practical and make it as easy as he can. So week one, we talked about pain in our lives. And James begins to talk about how the pain that we walk through, that there is purpose in the midst of it. That God can turn the pain and transform those moments that we think are so dark and use it to shape our character, to use it to shape our hope, to develop this perseverance inside of us. That was week number one. Week two, we talked about discrimination. How James has a lot to say about how we treat the people in our world around us. Week three, we talked last week about our tongue, about the words that we say. And honestly, I think I was most convicted in week three, but honestly, all three have been hard hitting. If you missed them, you can check them out online. So you would think we have been punched out of nowhere three weeks in a row. So hopefully in week four, James slows down and you would be wrong, everybody, because he actually speeds up. He just decides to punch us one more time. It's amazing. He, back today, I think he tackles one of the things that creates toxic culture within the church, maybe more than anything else. And it might not be what you expect. Oftentimes it happens without us noticing. So you want to open your Bibles, James chapter 4. Uh, we're going to study the first nine verses of this chapter. As James wrestles with this idea, this subject of what is at the center of your life. What is it that you're actually focused on? In fact, in the NIV, uh, my Bible's an ESV, but in the NIV, the little heading, I think it says a God-centered life. Which is actually kind of the title of today. What does it look like? Because I don't know if you know this or not, but our lives should be God-centered. Like, that's just free for you, all right? That's just an easy... Our lives should be God-centered, but too often times, we let a lot of other things, maybe not knowingly, I would just give us the benefit of the doubt. Most of the time, we don't know we're doing it. But we let other things not just, like, distract us during a season, but actually derail our lives. Like, this isn't like a light issue, James. It's like, hey, you guys are kind of dabbling here, dabbling there. It's just kind of distracting you. No, this is actually something that knocks us completely off the track. And I think it rises up even as Christians. And so we're going to jump into verses 1 to 5. And he paints a picture of a condition of a Christian life that I think is very relevant to us. And then in verses 6 through 9, he starts, turns kind of a corner and starts to tell us how we fix all the things we got wrong in the first five verses. Amen, everybody? I love that kind of style. He gives us, he smacks us in the face, 1 to 5, this is what's wrong, 6 to 9 here, let's help you try to actually fix it. And so let's jump in. Come on, let's go. Verse 1, he says, what's causing the quarrels and fights among you? And some of you are like, it's that jerk I'm married to. That's what's causing all those things. It's, not the, it's that person at the work. It's all, he says, don't they come from the evil desires at work within you? 
this ward. You want what you don't have, and so you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. Here's the problem. You don't have what you want still because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask God for it, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. James is like closing every loophole. You watch this as he goes. I love James. James like says something in a verse and you're like, wait, but what about this? And then he says something else and you're like, yeah, you got me. That's it. Even when you do ask, you don't get it. Your motives are wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Verse four, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think that the scriptures have no meaning? So they say that God is passionate, that the spirit he's placed within us should be faithful to him. So first five verses kind of paint the picture of what has gone wrong in a lot of Christian lives. So we're kind of in a bad place. That we've let other things come up. And the way that we fall prey to this and this concept about life is that all of these things are actually about pleasure. That life is all about me. In fact, jot it down if you're taking notes today. A selfish life, a pleasure-centered life, it's marked by selfishness. If we actually are honest with ourselves, all of these things we're chasing, all the things we want, as James starts to talk in these first five verses, it's marked by this idea of selfishness. The goal of the devil in all of our lives is to distract us from the call that God has for us. To keep us from advancing his kingdom. To keep us from doing what he placed inside of us to do. He would love to distract or to derail your life. And the way that he does it is he appeals to this natural sin nature inside of us. You know, none of us are good people. You understand this, right? This concept. I don't know if you've heard this before, but I'll tell you today. I love you. You are a bad person. Come on, somebody. All of us have a sin nature inside of us. And the devil would love to appeal to that. That thing that's inside of us that wants to love what the world loves. That wants to go after what the world goes after. That I'm going to do whatever makes me feel good. Whatever makes me feel right. Whatever I think will help me the most. And this lifestyle is marked by this sense of selfishness. This sense of it's all about me. And when selfishness is at the core of our lives, it does some pretty toxic thing. Jot it down if you're taking notes. First of all, selfishness forgets God. First thing it does, somewhere in the process of becoming the center of our universe, we forget about God altogether. We replace him in our hearts and our lives with our own agenda our own motivation, our own ideas about doing things. Back to verse 2, he says, you don't even have what you want. And so you scheme and you kill to get it because you're not even praying about it anymore. Watch this in the second half of verse 2. He says, you try to take it away. You don't have what you want because you don't even ask God for it. So you're not even praying anymore. You're in this pursuit of selfish pleasures or things that you want in your life. And we're, we're going after the things that I think make me feel good and make me feel whole and the things that I want most in life. And so we forget completely about God. So we're not even praying anymore about God. You know, which, which company should I work for? And God, which promotion should I take? And God, what should I do in this situation or in this relationship? Or God, how do you want me to handle my finances? Or God, I pray you would meet this need. No, we're not praying about it any longer, about the things that we desire. Honestly... And I've noticed this in my own. Honestly, the times we stop praying for them is usually when our desires have stepped outside of God's will for our life. It's just a tendency that I've noticed. Maybe not for any of you people, all the holy people, just me. All right, just me. But I found the times we stop praying is usually when we are pretty suspicious that our desires have stepped outside of God's will for our life. In fact, let me show it to you. Psalms 37 verse 4. The Bible says this. It says, delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. 
Now, this is a verse that we love to put on bumper stickers and refrigerators and tattoo it on our forehead. We, we love this verse. Delight the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. The problem and interesting thing about this verse is God is our provider. You know the verses. He'll provide all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He is our protector. He is our provider. But I want you to see the first thing that happens before we even get to that part is delight yourself in the Lord. That first we delight ourselves in him, and then he gives us the desires of our heart. And that's an important, I think we like the second part, and we forget all about the first one. Because see, what happens is, I think one of the things that we kind of skip over is we miss this delight yourself in the Lord step. Because I think one of the heresies in the church, in the modern day church, especially, particularly in America, is this lie that says, if you can just get God in your life, he'll make all your dreams come true. If you can just get this one piece, like if you can just sow the right seed, then God is like contractually obligated to give you everything you selfishly want. Like if you just do one thing, then everything else that you've ever wanted, it just has to happen because that's the way the unit, that it is a lie from the pit of hell. The message of the gospel is you and I have to die to our own dreams, our own promise, our own things we want so we can live to the promise God has for our lives. That God isn't a -a make-a-wish genie. God isn't a slot machine. That's not how this thing works at all. And so it says we delight ourselves in the Lord. And then he grants us the desires of our... You know why? Because then our hearts start to be purified. And then our desires start to be purified. So we begin to want the things that God actually wants for our lives. Watch, I'll show it to you in Galatians. Watch what it says. It says, the sinful nature inside of us wants to do evil. Which is the opposite of what the Spirit wants. Those aren't the desires that God is giving you in your heart. But once we seek Him, we delight ourselves in the Lord. The Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. That He begins to purify your heart first. And then you begin to see God move in your life. That it's an inside-out issue. This isn't like God grants all your dreams and wishes in life. So you can just go be a selfish person. And He just gives you an excess. All the things that are actually destroying you, everybody. But it says he purifies our hearts first. But sometimes it's a bit of a challenge because check it out. We get to the next verse. He says in James now in verse three, but even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. So now you're actually praying, but you're praying for things with the wrong motive. Remember, we talked about this. A pleasure centered life is marked by selfishness. And so we pray with all these selfish motives for things that give us pleasure. He says some of us are cutting God out altogether. That's one problem. But then some of us are actually praying for things, but we pray with the most selfish motives in mind. And he's saying, even when you do that, God's not going to answer that prayer. You're praying for the wrong reasons. Let me give you an example. Like for me as a Christian, it is easy. And this is going to sound counterintuitive, but it's easy to die to things that are opposite to what God wants for my life. Like if I say I want to do this and God is like, no, no, don't do that. I have this for you. It's easier for me to see the contrast, to see the difference. And to say, okay, then I'm going to die to this because I'm going to pursue after that. The problem for us as Christians, especially if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, is oftentimes our desires in almost a natural way start to kind of shift where we start to pray for things that aren't sinful on their face. Because remember, it's easy when I can see the contrast, sin, not sin. I can say no to this. I can say yes to this. But it's when we start to pray for things that aren't actually sinful on the face of it. But they've corrupted our desire for it into selfishness, into motivation. Let me give you an example. We all want to live in a nice home, right? There's nothing sinful on its face about that. Everybody would like to have that. But most of us would say, I want to live in a nice home so I can like show my family that I have made it, baby. I, those losers out there, I have done what they said I couldn't do. 
And all those people I don't actually care about will now think I am an actually important person. Because I have this thing, right? And I want to be able to say, well, I live in there and you live out there. And so we're, we are not the same. You are, you are different. You are outside. I live in here and there is a gate. You see the gate? Because that's where. And we want these things that maybe in the beginning are not sinful on their face. I wouldn't say everybody who has a big house is a sinner. And everybody who doesn't, everybody, you just have to. But we want them for the wrong reasons. Or we say, I want to be really, really wise in life so that everybody will come to me for advice and think how great I am. Or I want to have influence so people will think that I am moving with power in my business circles and I'm the one who can make deals done. I'm the one who can do these things. And so we pray for all of these things, but not out of right motivation, out of selfishness. And our perspective is wrong about it. And so it may even be something that God would not mind you having, that God might want to bless you with, but we pray for it with the wrong motivation. And so we don't get it. James is saying, even when you pray, you pray out of selfishness. For these things, even on the face of it, you know, God can give you those things. Like we talked about this last week. If you need whatever it is to do what he's called you to do, he has no problem dropping blessing or opening doors, but not so he can feed your selfish motives. Not so he can puff up your ego so you can look at all the losers in your life and show them what you do. That's the God will not listen. We're going to get to this in just a moment. He doesn't even listen to prayers like that. And so we're praying for these things. Out of wrong, selfish motivation. Now, God wants you to leverage the things that he gives you to be the biggest blessing we could possibly be on this earth. He writes to me, he says, write to those who are rich to be rich in good deeds. You know, those of us who think, well, I'm going to pray for influence. We pray it out of ourselves. No, those of you who have influence, you know what it's for? It's so you're able to spread the gospel. You're, over to, you're able to mentor and to lead others and to raise up the next generation. You know why you have influence in this world? It's to do what God has called you to do. You know why you have wisdom? It's so you're able to make godly decisions. You're able to lead your family well. That's why God gives us these things. Blessings so we can be a blessing. Riches so we can be rich in good deeds. And if he doesn't give you riches and he blesses you in some area, it's because you're supposed to use that to bless others, to spread the gospel. It's what we're called to do. God wants to bless us, but it's for different motivations. So we may be praying for something that God even wants us to have, but we pray with selfish motivations. And James says the wrong reasons were after pleasure. And the Bible says that'll be a condition of the church in the later days. Watch this in 2 Timothy. He says they will love, talking about church people, they will love pleasure rather than God. Having a form of godliness. So they look spiritual. These are Christians. Not talking about the world. Look spiritual. Look like they've got it all together. It may even be us, everybody, thinking we have everything that looks like it's right. But we deny even the slightest bit of heart change. There's no power behind it. We're not allowing God to change our desires or our purification. James is addressing this issue that in the midst of forgetting that God is our provider, that God has a say in the things we desire, we focus on the way that we want to live our lives. And somewhere along the way, after selfishness forgets God, somewhere along the way, selfishness becomes fascinated with the world. That's what it's describing here. Lovers of the world. When Christians get to the place that we make pleasure the center of our lives, we get all this selfish motivation going on. There's this tendency, something inside of us. And I used to say, well, it's just for young people. That there was like this fascination of, well, I'm missing out on what my friends are doing. or I'm missing out. And honestly, I've come to the place that I think it affects every age. I don't think this is like a, just the young people just want to kind of dabble in the world and kind of see what they're missing out on. I think this affects all of us. Because we pray, we, or we, we preach ideas of, well, they just want to go clubbing or go to the bar or go sleep around and just kind of figure out what they're missing and what they're thinking. And it leads to death, everybody. But listen to me, that's not the only way we become fascinated with the world. 
Because sometimes in whatever age you are, you start to look at the way the world acts, or the way the world gets to live their life. And you think, well, maybe I'm missing out. Because I saw so-and-so, they got to lose their temper and in a self-righteous way. And I would love to be able to do that. But God says, I have to love. And so I want to kind of dabble in that next week. I want to be able to lose my temper. Quiet in this church this morning. That's what it's going to be. Or we say that so-and-so gets to act like this towards their family. Or they get to live like that. I don't care what age you are. I promise this is a tendency in the church to creep up. That we become fascinated by the world. And we want to begin to live our lives one foot in the world, one foot in the church. And James is saying, that's not an okay place to be. I say, I just want to kind of dabble. I just want to kind of stick my toe in. I just want to do the thing. And this is the message game gives. Watch this in the next verse. He says, you adulterers. Somebody just woke up. That's what he just came <laughs> That's strong language, James. James is not like, and I hope I can help you come along. No, he just, he, he's accusing us of committing spiritual adultery. That's what he's doing in this verse. Committing spirit. If you're in a place, you're fooling around with the world and you're giving your heart to the things of the world. As you need to realize you are committing spiritual adultery. It's not a light issue. I would say week four, this is probably the, one of the deepest cuts that James can make. That he's saying if you're dabbling. In fact, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Now, some of you would say, well, that doesn't make any sense to me, Pastor. I thought we were supposed to be friends with unchurched people and unsaved people. We were supposed to be friends with them so we can lead them to Christ. And you would be absolutely right. The Great Commission, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You're supposed to be. He didn't say go in the church and hide from all the unsaved people. That's not what God said. He said, go out and make disciples of all nations. You're supposed to have friends with unsaved people so you can lead them and show them an example of what a godly life looks like. One person said there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the fifth one is a Christian, and most people don't read the first four. You're supposed to be an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus, of God's love in the world. But you read this, it doesn't say don't be friends with ungodly people, it says friendship with the world. And if you read the phrase in the original language, it's actually saying a fascination with the mindset. This pursuit of earthly things. This isn't like you're just friends with Joe Bob down the road. This is an actual pursuit of world, a fascination with the thing. So even as Christians, we get in this place of spiritual adultery. where We become fascinated with the things of the world, the way the world does things, the way they raise their kids, the way they treat other people, the way they live their lives, the way they spend their money. We get to the place where we put these other things ahead of God. And he says, and I'll say it again, because he's probably talking to guys that don't hear it the first time. Come on, somebody. You, you ladies know what I'm talking about. He said, I'll say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. You want to be fascinated by the world, wrapped up in all the things. You make yourself an enemy. I want you to see that too. God is on your side. God loves you. God wants the best for your life. God is watching over you. He's our protector and our provider. But if you set yourself at opposition to him, you, you actively place yourself across from the God of the universe and the things that he is doing in this world. James is saying, you spiritual adulterers, you, you, we want both. We want to have one foot in the world, one foot in the church, and we are placing ourselves, sometimes unknowingly, I'll give us the benefit of the doubt, at odds with God. We are placing ourselves at odds. What happens is we pursue things rather than Him. In fact, He gave us a set of rules. When He first started to have relationships with like a group of people, way back in Exodus, when He chose the Israelites and He gave them the set of rules, ten of them, right? The first one He gives, you shall have no other gods before me. Rule number one, God says, if I'm going to be in your life, I'm not going to be in second place. If I'm going to be a part of that. And in the Hebrew, this actually means no other rulers. Nothing else that would rule your life. 
nothing else that would come into place. And yet as Christians, we have so many other things that maybe for a season or maybe for a year or maybe for our whole lives, we have allowed to rule in his place. We've allowed to take the place ahead of God that are calling the shots. I heard at one time two areas you can see if a person puts God first. The first one's in our schedule. Could someone look at your schedule and indict you for being a Christian? We'll just leave that one out there right now. Would someone look at it? Because if you can, you are a better person. Because there have been seasons, whole months in the last year. I was just, I don't know if you know this. When I, when I prepare for a Sunday, I have an own self-reflection, everybody. I'm just, just, it's not something I just throw out on you and I go home and sleep really well. I got some self-reflection that happens in the week leading up. And I promise you, if you're able to do this in your schedule, you are a better person than I am. Because in self-reflection, there have been months where I could not say this. Are there times, could somebody look at your schedule, the way that you spend your time, and convict you of being a Christian? And the second part we do it, second part, not just in our schedules, is our checkbook. Could someone look at your bank account and come up with enough evidence to accuse you of loving other people like Christ has loved you? Of being generous in every occasion, of caring for others, the weak and the sick and the poor among us. They say the most sensitive nerve in the human body. And I thought this is funny because it's true. Because we get quiet when we hear it. The most sensitive nerve you have is the one that connects your heart to your wallet. That's why all of us are saying ouch a little bit this morning. Listen to me. This is not, I'm not taking up an offering. Keep your money, everybody. I'm saying no other gods. No other rulers. Nothing else that's going to command our lives. Even for those of us who carry the label Christian, we say I'm a Christ follower. But at the end of the day, do our actions actually reflect that? Do they actually? There's not a whole lot of evidence. And I'll say in some seasons for a lot of us, myself included, there's not a whole lot of evidence that God is first in our lives. That he's on the throne. And maybe it's just a set of values we kind of carried along because it was easy to have alongside of us. But we keep them at a hand's distance because we want to live our own pleasure-centered life. Because it's the mantra of our culture that we do what makes us feel good. We do what makes us, what we like, makes us happy. And here's the principle I need you to see. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He will not take second place. He will not take second place in our life. And so God is saying, am I at the center? And so here we are in this condition. We've got these things out of whack. We're forgetting God altogether. Now we're pursuing fascination with the mindset of the world. And our life is built on the money that we can make or the cars that we drive or the clubs we are belonging to, or the homes or neighborhoods that we live in. And all of a sudden, when all of those things happen, check out the condition that surfaces. And this is the one I think is the culmination of all of these in most of our lives. That is, we start fighting with people. Selfishness fights with the people in our world. We become combative. James is like, you got issues. These are Christians he's talking to. They're not people of the world that he's trying to like bring the hammer down on. He says, you got issues. You carry the label Christian, but check it out. Back to verse 1. He says, you're fighting with the quarrels and the fights with the people in your world. They're coming from this issue inside of it. You know why, James is asked, you know why you pick a fight with everybody in your world? You know why you're yelling constantly? You know why you're always in a combative state with everybody? James is asking this, not me. Come on, somebody. Separate me from James for a moment. I love you. I would never ask you this. But you know why James is asking you this? You know why you fight with everybody? Well, James, it's because of the evil desires within you. There's something going on on the inside. Your external wars are revealing internal wars, everybody. You understand this? Like you're fighting with everybody because there's something on the inside of you that's gone sideways and it's causing you to fight with people. 
One time, a little while back, I was in the post office, just minding my own business out there on Old Hammond, just standing in line with my box to sell. Some of you are like two weeks in a row with a post office story. You just, <laughs> I sell a lot of stuff online, and so I have to ship things a lot. And so I go to the post office on Old Hammond. I go to the UPS on range. Maybe I'll see you there, all right? So it'll be great. But I'm just standing in line, just kind of minding my own business. You know, sometimes you go in and you're going to talk to people, and sometimes you're there to do something. Like, you just got your AirPods. I'm ready to do something and get on with the rest of my day. And I'm waiting in line for like 25 hours because I went at lunchtime like the idiot that I am. And so I'm just like eight people back, just kind of waiting, listening to music, doing whatever. And I remember the lady whose turn it was steps up with this big box, and she steps up to the counter, and she dumps like 200 envelopes on the counter in front of this lady. And she begins to speak in this ridiculously patronizing voice. Like this woman behind the counter has never seen mail before. And it kind of turns out, I'm just kind of halfway listening. Turns out she had all of these letters. I'm talking more than 200 returned to sender because she had put the wrong postage on it. She tried to print out something her own and put the wrong postage. All of it got returned to her. But she is convinced that the reason it came back is somebody had touched the stamp with their finger before it went into the machine. That's what she called the little mail slot that was out in the lobby at the time. That's what she called the machine. She had just convinced. And so the postal lady is trying to convince her, no, that slot just goes in a box that is like, I can see it from my desk. But the lady's not having any of it, right? She's not having nothing. And so she's beginning to shout like, no, you don't understand the machine and the whole. And so I take my headphones out because this is amazing, right, everybody? This is like, you cannot pay for the entertainment our fellow Louisianians give us. That is just, that's a fact, everybody. I don't know if you understand it. And so she starts it, and so they're, they're kind of going back and forth. And so begins her trying to hand, one by one, every envelope to this woman. But manually spread her fingers so she will not touch the stamp. And I'm like, this is, why cannot this happen every time I come to the post office? Like, most of the time, I'm just bored. But most of the, this is amazing. And so by this point, they are very upset with each other. There is anger. And she starts to shout things like, well, if you were properly trained. And the postal lady is like, well, if you weren't insane. And it's just an amazing time. It's about... It's like this moment. And so finally it ends with the lady going, fine, I will go feed them into the machine myself. And she goes out. And sure enough, when I left, there she was, one by one, trying to stuff these letters into the mail slot of the where the machine lives. Come on, somebody. Where the thing. How many of y'all know there was something going on on the inside of that woman? Something, something inside of her long before that poor postal worker ever showed up in her life. She got up that morning and she got into her car thinking, I'm going to rip somebody up and down today. It is going to, I hope somebody crosses me. I hope, I, I just, I'm living for it. Baby. Anybody know people like that? You got anybody, like they wake up, it's a fight. They go to Walmart, it is a fight. They go to the restaurant, it's a fight. They go to family union, it's a fight, baby. Like they are just looking, like we are going to, we're going to, anybody, some of you are like, yeah, I got people in my family like that. Those of you are like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. We just... <laughs> <laughs> Bible says it's not everybody else's fault. <laughs> you know, the one common denominator in all of your wars is you. It's not everybody else. David's saying you, have what you, you don't have what you want because your life's all about pleasure and selfishness. And check this out. You don't have it. And so your focus perspective, you've forgotten God in the process. And we get this scarcity mentality. James addresses it here. You want what you don't have, and so you scheme and you try to kill to get it. Because we forget. It's amazing how we forget that God is able to bless everybody. There's no end to what God can do to accomplish his purposes. But we forget this. And so we think if somebody else got blessed, then it must come at the expense of my blessing. 
And if God is doing something in their life, well, there's no way God could ever do it. If they got some nice house, or they got that, God gave them the only house in all existence that could ever be given to anybody else. And that's the only one that's on for sale anywhere in this entire world. And so God must not care about me because he cares about them. And we live our lives. We might not say it, but we think it. Well, if God blessed them, then he must have forgotten about me. When the Bible talks about we are one body, we go further, faster together. We're supposed to live in harmony. And yet somehow we live with this competitive mindset of if he blessed you, then he must hate me. And if you got a blessing, well, then that's just the end of any chance I have. And I'm going to actively try to steal and to kill and try to take your blessing because that's the one that was meant for me. I can't believe God wouldn't give it to me. And it is so toxic in the body of Christ that we look at someone else's. Why would someone else's success somehow impact my emotions? Why would it somehow impact my life? That because they got a promotion or because they had a blessing or because something worked out right, that God answered a prayer, that something went. Why would that somehow? But we do it. And we look with jealousy and rage. And James is talking about that. He says, you look at them. And the problem is we start to disqualify them and qualify our situation. But the Bible says you can't get it. And so we decide, well, if God's not going to give it to me, and I can't see any other way that I'm going to get it or any other path, I'm going to wage war and I'm going to take it from them. He says, you scheme and you lie. And if that's their opportunity, I'm going to take it. And if it's their blessing, I'm going to take it. And we tear down the body of Christ because we live in jealousy of somebody else's blessing. And James is saying, this is not an okay place to be in. And so we say, I become enamored with the world and you're probably continuously fighting with people. If you're in this condition, James says, where you're living, you've forgotten God. You're fascinated by the things of the world. You're fighting with people in your life instead of loving them and seeing their win as your win. You become at odds with people and that's not the life God has called us to live. So what does it look like to live a God-centered life? What is he? Five verses now. He has smacked us around. I don't know if you feel bruised or not. I'm, I'm, I'm there. So what does it look like to live? And it's probably different than you would expect. Jot it down if you're taking notes. A God-centered life is actually marked by humility. If a selfish, pleasure-centered life is marked by selfishness, then a God-centered life is it's humility that you and I need to stay free of the selfishness. James chapter 4, verse 6. He kind of turns the page here. He changes his tone. He's talking about all these things, pursuing the things only you want in life, fighting with people, walking away from God. And he says, but here's what I want you to know about God. All of these things that he smacked us, all of these things that he's done. But here's the thing, James says, you did all those things. Here's what I want you to know about God. But he gives grace generously. Like you would expect, but I want you to know this about God, that he brings the hammer down. And I want you to know this about God, you selfish Christians who are living in this pursuit of pleasure and this universe centered around you. I want you to know this, that God brings the hellfire down on your head. He could have said anything you want. He said, you get to the end of this. You're fighting with people. You are selfishly centered. You've forgotten and walked away. You've done all these things. And here's what I want you to know. He gives grace generously. What an interesting thought as Christians. That when we get wrapped up with ourselves... When we get wrapped up in our selfishness, enamored by the world, middle of fights with people, James says, remember, it's not over for you. Remember, as harsh and as hard as it sounds, it's not the end for you. Remember that God gives grace generously, that we serve a God who is so incredibly generous with the grace that he gives that we can't even imagine it. And honestly, entire sections of Christians get angry because of it, of how incredible God's grace is. And we want to set ourselves up as judge because we just can't imagine that God could be as generous with the forgiveness as he is. 
And James says, I want to remind you that God is so incredible that he will forgive and restore no matter it is what you've done. That he extends grace. That he extends forgiveness. But here's the secret scripture says, and James says, God opposes the proud. So he gives grace generously, but here's the secret. He opposes the proud, but the ones he gives grace to are the humble. So jot it down this way if you're taking notes. Humility releases God's grace. This posture of humility is what actually accepts the grace of God. Because if you're in a condition where your world is wrapped up in your selfishness, and you're worshiping things instead of God, and you need some course correction, maybe that's what convicted you today. I don't know which of those you're in, but I promise you all of us are in one of them. But we say, maybe you're off course. Humility is what helps us, the posture of humility It's what brings God's grace. In fact, I take you back to the history in the Old Testament, the beginning of Israel's king era, the first two kings of Israel, two kings that there are. The first one sins and he has the kingdom ripped from him the day of. The second one, and I won't tell you the names, just the second one, though, sins and sins and sins. And yet he's called a man after God's own heart. It's King Saul and King David. You ever wonder why Saul sinned that one time and had the kingdom ripped from him? And yet David sins a hundred million times and they say a man after God's heart fulfilled his calling for, God's, for his generation that God called him to do. You ever wonder why David had so much leash and Saul had it ripped out of his hands? I'll show it to you. I'll show it to you in the verse. After one mistake, Saul was told, go wipe out this people group. Go completely destroy this enemy of the people of God. Told exactly what to do, exactly where to go, exactly how to do it. He goes and he does what he wants to do. Keeps the king alive, keeps the animals alive that he wants. He decides the things that will benefit him. He decides to do selfishness. Decides my plan is better than God, pride. And when the prophet confronts him with his sin, Saul isn't like, I can't believe I've done it. Saul is like, I don't know what you want from me. I did what God said. I did. I don't, I don't know. Just come on. We're going to go and sacrifice these things. What I did is actually even better than what God said. And so we're going to go and have the sacrifice. We're going to go and do these things. Pride. And the prophet looks at him. One mistake, prophet looks at him and says, today the kingdom's ripped from your hands and given to someone else. One mistake. And yet here's David. Commits a hundred times worse sins. If we're having our own human, human hierarchy of sins. And the prophet comes to him, confronts him with his sins. And David falls on his face before God. And cries out, I can't believe, in true repentance, David says, wears, rips his clothes, sits in ashcloth, submits himself to the mercy and the grace, and God extends grace. God extends grace. And there's, there's, I cannot, I, the only way, you look throughout all of scripture and you find these, you find these who are set themselves up in opposition. In your life, if you come to sin and you are convicted of it, Someone comes in your life and says, hey, that's not right. You hear a sermon and you're like, yeah, I understand. That's what I've been doing. In your own life, you begin to self-acknowledge. And you say, "Those are the." if you come into that thinking, I don't know what you want from me. I don't care what God's word said. It's just what I do. It's just the way that I live. All these other people out here sinning. Why can't I just, I did that thing. Saul had one. You go into those, you set yourself in opposition. Don't expect to extend any grace in your life because it said God resists the proud. Expect for God to resist you. But you go into this with a humility mindset, a posture of humility in your life. A posture of humility that goes before him as we're struggling and we're praying and we're confessing and asking God for his grace. It doesn't matter how many times we fall. True repentance. God always extends forgiveness. And if you can't extend your theology... 
to encompass a God that would forgive like that. I would remind you, when Peter asked Jesus, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven? Because that sounds like a lot to me. And Jesus said, 70 times seven. And Peter said, that's too much. I I didn't actually pray that, Jesus. I didn't want to hear that answer. You think about that, that God told us we should forgive. Even more than that, do you really think God would ask us to do something that he himself is unwilling to do? Do you really think he would lay that on us if he himself were not greater than us in every aspect of forgiveness? In every aspect of the way that he loves. Humility, true repentance, there is always forgiveness. And then he says in verse 7, so humble yourself before God. You want that grace? You find yourself sinning in the first five cha- first verses. You find that grace. He says, so humble yourself. One translation, it says, so place yourself under God's authority. Humble yourself before God and then resist the devil and he will run away from you. Now, we got to get God's protection in our life. We need his grace, humility. We need his grace in our lives because we're recognizing I need grace for the mistakes that I've made. So I'm going to humble myself. But then I realize That outside of my propensity to sin, outside of my own sinful nature, there is an enemy of our souls. There is an enemy that's trying to destroy us. We need to have a little bit of spiritual authority to resist his attacks. The way that you get that is humility. Because humility, write it down if you're taking notes, humility resists the devil. This posture of humility. The only way we can resist the devil is by having authority. The only way we have authority is by submitting to authority. We got to understand this. Submission is not submission until we actually submit. We can say we want to submit to God's word until the crossroads are met where it goes against what we feel we should be doing. It's not actually submission. But he says, submission in God's authority so that I can have authority. Some of us don't understand it. Let me give you an example, maybe that makes it clear. In my house, 95% of the things that we own on this earth are toys. Come on, somebody. I got three small kids. We have, we have made an investment in a depreciating asset. Come on, it just, it is not a wise move, except for the Legos. Those might be worth more later, except we're missing 800 pieces from every box. So I don't have a lot of faith in it for retirement. But that's what we have invested in. And it covers every square inch of our house. The way that my kids like to play with toys is they like to dump them all out, and that is playing. We don't actually play with them. We just dump them out. It takes 45 seconds to do and 800 hours to clean up. It's amazing. But that's the way. So, but my daughter, Hava, she's five years old. or She just turned six. My daughter, Hava, is six years old. And I'm glad she didn't hear me say that because she would march up on this stage and tell you she is six years old. But she is, has a natural leadership tendency. And so as the youngest sibling, she has this propensity to be the leader. She feels like she has to get the troops in order. And so she will say things like, it's messy in this room. Y'all need to clean this up. She will go to her brothers and be like, your room is not, you need to clean in here. How many know that, that commandment is completely just ignored? Like that has, because the name Hava has no power, has no, no staying ability. Or she'll look at that night, last night she looked at brothers, she was like, it's time to brush your teeth. How many know they didn't get off of watching the LSU game and be like, yeah, I need to go brush my teeth. Hava said I need it because it has no power. But if mommy or daddy says, Hava, go tell your brothers that daddy said they need to clean. How many know demons flee when that command is given? Come on, somebody. In the name of daddy, we shall clean. We shall have the... Because there's authority in there. In the same way, we submit ourselves to the authority of Christ. There's no spiritual authority in the name Ben. I don't know if you understand this. There's some, there's some hilarious stories in the New Testament. People trying to give authority under their, own pure, under their own power. There's no authority under my own power. But we submit ourselves to the authority of Christ. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now I give. We submit ourselves. We have no authority unless we put ourselves under authority. 
And so we wonder why we are not seeing the devil flee from our homes and from our lives and from our jobs and from our careers. We wonder why he's still attacking while he's having his way in our houses. Because we have no spiritual authority of our own. We submit ourselves to him. So that's where we get. And how do we get authority? Submitting. Humility resists the devil. Because humility says, I am not first in my life. Humility says, I am not the end all be all. I place myself under an authority that is greater than I am. Humility resists the devil. And he has to flee. Humility says Christ is first at the center of my life and he has to run from our homes and from our lives and from our children. He has to run. Humility places ourselves under authority and it resists the devil. Humility, a posture of humility that resists. We need his grace. We need his power. Listen to me. Our spiritual authority is tied to our spiritual humility. The authority we have in our life, it's all tied to how humble we have placed ourselves. We need his grace and we need his power. Last one, verse 8, it says, and come close to God. And God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. He's not talking to world people. He's not talking talking to people in the church. You purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Helping to see that as Christians, even sometimes we have one foot in the world, one foot in the church. And he's saying that's a condition that's not okay. It's not okay. So there has to be some repentance that takes place. Some washing and some purifying. Let there be tears for what you have done. This is not a verse we read very often. I think sometimes we skip it. We're like, okay, tears. Yeah, let there be tears. All right. Boo-hoo. I'm really sad that I... He said, let there be tears for the things you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. I hope you see the picture he's describing. He's not saying you need to be condemned and depressed all the time. It's not what he's saying. That you would just think that's a lie of the devil that tries to get us in a place of depression. That there's no hope. That God could never love you again. That there's no chance for redemption. That's not what he's talking about here. In fact, in in 2 Corinthians, the Bible says that worldly sorrow is what leads to death. This idea of we just need to be self-condemned and just sorrow and all these things. That's not what he's talking. That's condemnation. That's not God's plan. What he's saying is there needs to be a sense of severity and conviction for the things that we've done. There needs to be a seriousness about this. The fact that, yeah, we have broken God's law. Yeah, we have sinned against him. Yeah, we have grieved the heart of God. Not somebody down the street that we know about their sin or somebody over there that we know how badly they are. We ourselves, James, he's writing to Christians. And he says, wash yourselves, sinners. Purify your hearts. Because you've let this thing, you've let this thing get out of control. You've let this thing take you to a place of pride. Like, like, let this thing... Take it to heart what we've done to God and the fact that even in light of all of that, he still extends grace to us. But let's make sure we're truly repentant. Let's make sure we're actually, let's take it seriously. Realize even as Christians, we have sinned. Sin means to miss the mark. We've missed the mark of God's word. So what do we have to do? Number three, we have to run to Jesus. Yes, humility, this posture of humility is what releases grace in our lives. It's what sets us under authority for the power that God has for us. But when we recognize that, when we see the severity of it, I told you, when you get in these moments, you either run from God or you run to him. We need to run to him. Pride runs away and says, I can do this on my own. Humility runs to Jesus every single time that we run to him. We need his presence in our lives because, yes, we need his forgiveness. We need his grace. We need his authority because we have to resist the enemy. But we need his presence in our lives if we're ever going to make it. And so humility runs to the feet of Jesus. It says, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. And I pray this week we wouldn't focus on our own pleasure, our own selfishness, but we would learn how to be humble. Always putting God first. 
Always placing him at the center of our lives. We give him first position in our schedules, in our lives, in our finances, in our relationships, in our homes. And then when we're stumbled and when we're tempted, we should be able to resist the devil and to run to Jesus. And James says that's what a God-centered life actually looks like. Bow your heads with me as we close. I want to pray before we go because I know we have gotten a whole bunch of this wrong. Myself included. I say myself included. Myself at the front of the line. We have gotten a bunch of this wrong. And James is just saying, if you realize it, as strongly as he can, he's saying, wake up spiritual adulterers. Wake up sinners. Wake up those who need to wash their hands and purify their hearts. Wake up. Let this be a week we wake up. James says as practically as we can make it. There's no hidden message here. There's no words behind the words. There's no thing that you go home and think, well, that was kind of vague. I don't really know what he was talking about. It was really deep, but I, you know, we'll just go to next week. James is saying, wake up. If pride has dominated your life, if pride has let you decide you are at the center, let's wake up. Humility is what brings God's grace. Humility is what resists the enemy. Humility is what runs to Jesus. Let's run to him. And I don't know where you are in life right now. I don't know what journey you're walking. I don't know how far you are on your path. But some of you, maybe you're in here and you're far from God in every sense of the word. And maybe you stumbled in here or maybe you're watching online because you accidentally clicked or maybe whatever it is, whatever it is that you're in this moment and you're far from God. There's a good chance. Maybe you got where you are because of something that happened in your life. Maybe you got where you are because you set yourself at the center of your universe. Maybe you got where you are because of prideful choices. You said, I don't care what God's word said. I'm going to do what I want. Whatever it is that got you where you are, I want you to hear this today, that there is still grace, that there is still forgiveness. No matter what it is that you've done, there's still forgiveness that God extends to you. He's not looking to get even with you. He's not looking to try to punish you in this moment. He's not looking for any of that. He's not looking for that. He's looking to redeem you. James says he gives grace so generously. That's still available for you today. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've come from. I don't care what road you've walked. There is still forgiveness for you. But it starts with humility. It starts with true repentance. Recognizing, yeah, I have done what's wrong and I want to do what's right. Recognizing Jesus paid the price for your sins. Humility submits. So humility runs to Jesus. Humility repents. And so right now we would love to pray with you. You say, that's me. I know I'm in sin. I know I've got this whole thing wrong. And anywhere there's sin, it brings death and destruction. And you are probably reaping that in your life right now. But you say, I want to turn this thing around. It starts with running to Jesus. This isn't about giving an offering. It's not about joining a church. This isn't about some secret code in some back room. It's not, not about any of that. It's about running to Jesus. Right now, I want to pray a prayer with you, a prayer of surrender. And our church has dedicated ourselves. We will pray with every person who wants to pray this, a prayer of salvation, that right now you can make it right. You can submit yourself and Jesus can make you brand new. If you want to pray that prayer, right now is your chance. I don't know what comes after this. I don't know what your life leads. I don't know your path and I don't know your journey. I know right now you have a chance. So you say, that's me. Pray this with us. Say these words. Say, Jesus, forgive me of all of my sin, all my mistakes. I repent. 
I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. And I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. Now, Father, I pray for us this week. God, that we would get our eyes off of ourselves. That we would get our eyes off of our selfishness. We would get our eyes off our pride. And we would live with a posture of humility. A posture that thanks you for the grace that you give. Humility that sets ourselves under your authority and prays under your authority that the name of Jesus, the devil, would have to flee from our homes and from our lives and from our children. And then humility that in every scenario, in every chance, in every stumble and fall, in every part of our lives, a humility that would run to Jesus. That we would fall on our knees at the foot of the cross, not in pride or arrogance, but realizing that we have got it wrong, but that grace abounds even more than our sin. We pray it all in Jesus' name. And all God's church said amen and amen. Come on, church. Can we give God praise for what he's done today?